0: Hello and welcome to The Connected Generation. My name is Nikhya Anani and I'm your host. On The Connected Generation, we explore all things legacy wealth and legacy business. Invite guests to explore these themes with curiosity and authenticity. And one of such guests is Alicia Powell, who joined me this week and she was amazing. Alicia is a powerhouse. She co founded a company called Champions for Philanthropy and CFP for short. They help professional athletes, entertainers, and influencers develop their charitable giving and brands. So she helps them to establish their nonprofit foundations or manage existing foundations to curate charitable initiatives that are specifically for what aligns with where there's a need and where the passion for her client, you know, and where there's a confluence of those two things. And really, really love this conversation because I've never really come across anyone um, that does this, that merges the world of someone that has a strong personal brand and a strong social capital and it merges that with how do we amplify social impact off the back of that and I found it really fascinating and whilst you might not be an athlete or a celebrity or an entertainer I think there's a lot of um, commonality between us as family enterprises as we think through our philanthropic activities how can we become more strategic how can we become more formalized how can we identify partners to collaborate with etc so you want to tune in Enjoy and share. Share this episode with a friend that you know might this might bless. Thank you so much. Take care. Hi Alicia, I'm so excited to have you today on the Connected Generation. Hello, so to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this should be good fun. Um you you've had such an amazing background, like you co-founded Champions for Philanthropy. You consult professional athletes, entertainers, developing initiatives. Can you tell us more about how did you get here, firstly?
1: Yes. um, So I founded Champions for Philanthropy five years ago. We're actually celebrating our five-year anniversary. Uh, And it came from the desire to want to get back into the sports industry uh, and with a focus on sports law. While I was in law school, the business of sports was something that I was very passionate about. Uh, as well as sports law, so I knew I wanted to work in the sports industry. And in starting up a sports law symposium at my school, as well as a sports law society. Um, but afterwards, those plans didn't work out when I graduated, uh, and I was definitely discouraged. I uh, tried doing something in the sports industry, and it didn't work. But doing nonprofit and business consulting after law school, and I did that for a few years and was do honing my skills outside of the legal industry um, towards the nonprofit and business side. Uh, so taking that, I had a winding road uh, in terms of working in other companies. Uh, I worked for a, um, an international fa- fashion retailer in the legal department. So I got to Ooh. cover a lot of different areas, which was great um, both on the legal side as well as the marketing side. Uh, corporate governance, things of that nature, and, and got my feet wet there, uh, as well as working with uh, an aviation attorney who also ran a, a family office. So I got experience oh in the family office world, as uh, the investment world, because he was also a private investor. So I was really able to see how you can have a law degree and do different things and not be pigeonholed into focusing on something, especially because I wasn't a practicing attorney. Um, so even though it was a winding road of different opportunities, it wasn't in sports directly. I wasn't working directly in the sports industry. Uh, my business partner had a very similar journey. She got her advanced degree her MBA in sports, but wasn't working in the sports industry as well. Uh, so we decided to come together and start something in the sports industry and embark on uh, this journey together. And when we were thinking of what the best fit would be for us in the sports industry, we settled with, uh, something that we wanted to do that was the most passionate for both of us. And that mm-hmm. was philanthropy and giving back and really making a difference using athletes platform. So uh, we toyed with a few different ideas of things that we could do based off of our skill set and our experience. Um, but this is what we were most passionate about to begin with. So we said, you know what, like let's make sure that we have the tools uh, and the resources to be able to effectively use their platform to give back and make a difference. Oh.
0: Wow, I, I just find it so creative and innovative because I haven't come across perhaps I've been under a rock, but I haven't come across anyone that's doing what you're doing. But when I think about it, it makes so much sense in terms of making an impact, you know, leveraging off the the reach The brand of an athlete and being able to use that leverage to make a positive impact in society and in community just makes so much sense you 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 told us about like your trajectory into this space but you skirted over something that i think is so important and is your transition from corporate out to co-establishing this Mm -hmm. organization with your partner and jumping from nine to fiving to entrepreneurship. Tell us more, how was that?
1: So that part was very interesting because it more, because the, the person I was working with held so many different, wore so many different hats. I, as a result was a very small office, so I wore a lot of different hats. So it wasn't five, it was a nine to nine or nine to 11. Um, so it was uh, an interesting place to start this journey um, because I actually started the company while I was still working. Um, so it showed me something that I was going to need, um, in the sports industry as an entrepreneur sports industry, which is, I have to be able to manage my time effectively. So every Mm -hmm. moment counted work, uh, after weekend lunch break, it was a making sure that I was able to maximize that time, which served me well to be able to serve my clients later. Um, and really know that, uh, or it's not a nine to five. Um, mm-hmm. And especially in the sports industry with it being you know events season, um, you know during the summer, it, I was able to get a crash course and what that was like by starting while I was still working. Um, mm-hmm. But it was an easy journey to make the decision to say, I'm going to leave something that is so comfortable. Uh, it was an amazing job with. An, I, I work with amazing people and an amazing location. Um, Mm. with, you know, something that was very stable, uh, and that had a very good future to take Mm. a a risk on something that, you know, was not as stable. And I didn't know what the future held there. Um, But at a certain point, I said, I went to school with a focus on work in the sports industry, I have this Mm. company where I'm actually working in the sports industry, why would I not do it full time? And I really had to take a step back and say, this is what I've been waiting for for so long. I, I had such a winding journey. I didn't know how I was going to get here. I'm here. I have to jump. And I have huh. to leave something that was so incredibly comfortable and stable <laughs> to go to something that wasn't. Um, so it wasn't an easy, wasn't something where I just, you know, said, okay, I'm going to do it. Like, this is an easy decision. It was something that took a lot of uh, self-reflection. And um, I am grateful that I had spent a few years prior uh, just really working on myself internally. Mm-hmm. Uh, was That definitely propelled me to be able to make such a tough decision uh, and really have the confidence to say, uh, no matter what, I'm making sure that I'm doing something that I want to do and just trusting the process.
0: It's amazing. It's very brave. Um, And I think we don't talk enough about that, like just generally in society about the fears of starting, the fears of becoming an entrepreneur and taking the jump, like you said, taking the leap. What, What were like the propellers, would you say? What helped you in taking that leap? Because a number of folks that listen to this podcast are working in their family enterprises or working in nine to fives. And they have the idea, they've got the passion, and they want to start something, but that fear holds them back. What helped you in taking that leap? Well,
1: taking the leap to actually start, it was, um, I was, the expression, there's an expression here, uh, you get sick and tired of being sick and tired, right? And I was like, um, it, it sounds counterintuitive to say it, because I just said how stable my life was, how comfortable it was. Um, I was you know making I was had a very comfortable life so being sick and tired it was more about being sick and tired of not doing what I know was in my heart to do and mm-hmm. what I had set out to do and what I was actually dreaming and like really uh, suppressing that for so many years because you know it didn't seem like it was ever going to happen and there was no clear path to get into the sports industry at this point I had been out of law school for years and you know coming in as a entry level position wasn't going to happen, coming in on a linear position wouldn't happen because I wasn't in the industry. So I had really worked to suppress those desires. Um, Mm. And I think uh, for those who are listening who who want to embark on the journey to take that leap, I would say to start go into that fair because at the end of the day, whatever happens will happen and it's not the end of the world. Just look Mm. back at anything that you've done in the past that even if it uh, didn't go the way you wanted it to go, it didn't mm-hmm. end. It didn't end. You're able to keep going, and you're able to uh, keep. Not don't be afraid of failure. Um, mm-hmm. And that sounds so cliche, but uh, you just you every failure is a learning attempt. You know, there's a um, a woman who has a, a, a saying: um, f- first attempt, and that mm-hmm. fail is first attempt at learning," and that's exactly what it is. So. Um, it wasn't, that was what helped me to actually start a company. Um, we started the company with no connections in the sports industry, uh, no athletes. Uh, so it was really a risk there uh, to talk about like the lack of stability, probability that it would work. Um, so it really did take a lot of faith to say, okay, we're going to do this and we're going to put our best effort, whatever happens, happens. Uh, the... Push to actually leave the job, uh, to work in the business full time, uh, I would really recommend the people to not ignore the signs, uh, you know, not, to not ignore what your intuition or whatever you believe that is telling you. Um, and I definitely tried to do that in the beginning. I'll be honest, like, I mean, they saying I was brave, but it did take a little bit longer than I should have been, <laughs> because I wasn't looking at all the signs around me that I was saying, have the faith to pursue this full-time and uh to get rid of the safety net and put a full faith effort into it
0: amazing and you know I often say that the fear and the kind of resistance is not an indication that you're not called to entrepreneurship um a lot of people think like the fear just means oh I'm not cut out I'm not fearless I'm not brave enough but there's a fear to start. And then there's also, there's a new set of fears when you start. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's, you know, it evolves and it's really a personal development journey. Um, the, the, the life of an entrepreneur. So yeah, no really, really great tips there that you, you said. And so speaking more to Champions for Philanthropy, can you tell us more about what you do and how you work with folks?
1: Yeah, so we are a consulting agency. Um, we're a for profit, which people sometimes get confused about because we work in the nonprofit industry. Um, but mm-hmm. we are a for profit company, a consulting agency that works with professional athletes, entertainers, influencers, and others with a platform to be able to have the tools and the resources to give back effectively. Uh, so, what that looks like is helping to start up the nonprofit foundation as well as to help them manage their foundation. Um, for some athletes or and for people, some people in general who, who want to get back and have that desire, having a formal nonprofit set up, a formal foundation isn't necessary. Create strategies for being able to have strategic partnerships as well as to create charitable initiatives and events without having to have a formal uh, tax-exempt organization.
0: Awesome. And what common challenges do you, you find that your clients face in this starting journey with philanthropic activities, whether formally or informally?
1: Yeah, um, when, you know, and obviously it's a, it varies on it depending on who the athlete is. But one thing that I see, people are sometimes resistant to give back to an, an athlete's nonprofit because they feel like the athlete. Their own money and that they should utilize, and you know, not knowing Hmm. the background of how much do invest into their nonprofits. uh, There's, you know, a lot of operating costs and things in terms of getting everything up and running. And you know, they're not privy to how much the athletes are actually contributing to their nonprofit. Um, But you know, we have encountered that where you'll have resistance from people supporting this particular organization just because of who the founder is. so it's a double-edged sword uh, because there are some people who want to support just because it is their favorite athlete or an athlete that they know of. And you have to feel that, you know, the athlete should be just putting everything in and it should just be a one-person show uh, because of their uh, bank account. So uh, that, that oh. that's an interesting thing that we've observed over the years. With current athletes, uh, time is definitely an issue in terms of Than wanting to give back as much as they can and be hands-on a lot of Mm -hmm. times, but having such a strenuous schedule with you know they're they're at the highest level of their sport, so uh, the time is not always as much as they would like. Uh, So just really being able to balance that and then maximize the time that they have off as much as possible, uh, which creates you know a busy. I mentioned the summer piece, uh, but depending on the sport, it creates a busy summer. Um, but you know, that, uh, those are two things that over the years have, I've seen as challenges for the professional athletes that we've worked with.
0: Really interesting about how folks just assume they have endless resources and don't need. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and you mentioned something interesting that people are often surprised that your business, your consulting business is for profit. Um, can you right. speak more about that? Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. Um, when they hear philanthropy and uh, you know working with nonprofits, the, the thought is that this would be done for free. Um, the reason why we did a nonprofit is because the, we want to make sure that the nonprofits have the best resources possible uh, and have the best uh, consulting possible. And the best way to do that is a consulting agency. Uh, so it didn't make sense to set up a nonprofit. Uh, obviously, we do as much as we can on the charitable side. We've done a lot of pro bono uh, work as well for both um, athletes because not every athlete is you know has a multi-million dollar contract, right. So we've done work pro bono for athletes uh, who have this desire to give back uh, as well as other nonprofits that we've encountered. Um, and you know just helping as many people as we can. but it is a um, a consulting agency. So that is something that was definitely, even to this day, it's hard for people to grasp that you know, oh. a consultant you can consult in the nonprofit industry <laughs> for profit. Correct.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting how, um, you know how people demonstrate value is. is I guess it's a philosophical thing, right? Isn't it? Um, yeah. how you choose to render or structure your business, whether it's for profit non-profit doesn't detract from the value you're providing to your clientele right right
1: right and um you know all of the services oh i'm sorry um no yeah And i was gonna the,
0: say and it costs money to do so <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right uh, and every service that we offer is a service that we also have offered to for-profit businesses and the services that for-profit businesses pay for right mm-hmm. we help with uh, marketing, social media management, uh, website development, um, you know, things of that nature, as well as filing paperwork. This is all, these are all things that you would need to start up a business, a for-profit business, and that mm. you would pay someone for. Um, so the same thing would have to be done on the nonprofit side. Mm.
0: Mm. Interesting. And I've, I was thinking, cause you traditionally served, um, athletes and celebrities with helping them with their philanthropic efforts and a uh, huge my communities typically families with businesses or family offices and get involved in ph- philanthropy but perhaps on an informal basis for those that are thinking now okay I may need to set up a formal foundation what tips would you give them yeah so the funny thing is I don't the first step is usually not even to
1: talk to a nonprofit consultant. The first step is to talk to, we always recommend for people to talk to their accountants because accountants know mm-hmm. uh, really sometimes even with the desire to give back, there is a benefit that comes with philanthropic giving. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, different, there's time of there. Um, so you may have people who, uh, of a certain network, who yes, they would like to give back. They would like to make a change, but start with your accountant to know if this is something that is needed. Because there are, like I mentioned, costs to running a nonprofit. Uh, it is a an entity, so uh, and and it's an even more even for profit company because it's tax exempt. Uh, mm. So the IRS is even more. Uh, there's more of a spotlight there. Um, so finding out from your tax professionals if this makes sense for you and for your financial situation. Uh, and mm. then at that point, if it's something that does make sense and something that can be sustained, um, I mentioned the operational costs and things of that, as well as set up costs, if it's something that makes sense for the family or for that individual, figuring out really what the goal is. Uh, mm. you'll, see, you'll see a lot of people who want to give back, but they want to help everything everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is something again without having a focus um it, it's very hard to garner outside support if you're supporting everything right <laughs> so uh, really just narrowing down what it is that you want to focus on um and making sure that it is needed because a lot of times partnerships can be had you don't have to have your own organization um, it might make sense to partner with an organization. I mm-hmm. think people always automatically think of larger nonprofits, um, well-known name brand nonprofits. but there are a lot on a local level who could really use, who are doing really good things with smaller operational costs
0: who mm-hmm. would
1: greatly benefit and really be able to make an impact with the the you put into starting your own.
0: So what I'm hearing is um the heart to want to give back the altruistic side is great but it's also important to um, almost treat this like a business and do like an evaluation and like a needs yes. assessment right and and get clear on what's your niche
1: mm-hmm. yes I mean everything that goes into starting a business goes into starting a nonprofit. we create plans for Uh, because even though it's fear, it's not a business in the traditional sense of making a profit, mm there still needs to, there are costs that go into running it, so you have to know how you will have the revenue to do so, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, There's, um, you mentioned, like, you know, you want to have a SWOT analysis, you want Mm -hmm. to know where the strengths are, the weaknesses, where you have opportunities, Uh, you want to be able to narrow down that market and that target area and um, make sure it's something that's needed because how do you get support for something that you know isn't needed. You may want, you know, children to have red bikes only, right? <laughs> but starting a nonprofit <laughs> to make sure that children um, in your neighborhood have red bikes may not get that much outside support. So um, you know you just want to make sure that you're not so caught up on a particular area or an idea that because it personally affected you sometimes that you don't look to see whether or not it's something that's actually needed uh or to make sure that it's not already done that mm-hmm. those resources can go to someone who is already doing it
0: that's amazing insight and um you mentioned there may be scope to collaborate with other philanthropists can you speak more to that how do people okay so for instance i'm passionate about maternal health care in i don't know Africa, Mm -hmm. and I want to set up a foundation for that. How do I find other um, donors or philanthropists, foundations to combine resources with? What does that look like practically? You know,
1: Mm. so practically speaking, um, there are large databases that house uh, at least domestic nonprofits that are registered with the IRS Mm -hmm. within organizations. And you can put in... um, GuideStar is one of them, charity navigator. You're able to put in particular areas and you can see uh, not just the name of the foundation, but also what their um what their health their health meeting, you know, have they filed their form 990s, which are the tax returns for nonprofits. You know, mm-hmm. are the, do they have their board of directors listed? You can see like the um that the makeup of the nonprofit. Uh, that is one more technical way. But another way is putting that into uh, Instagram or social media and seeing what nonprofits are out there that really mm. um, speak to you and, and mm. reaching out to them. You know, mm. I, over the years we've had so many different people reach out to us through social media, um, you know, from seeing, you know, they are reaching out to us via email, but letting us know that they first found us on social media. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's, Finding the nonprofit, if you, if you find one that way on through reading an article or doing a Google search, that's one thing. Uh, the second thing is really just making sure that it is a nonprofit that is actually registered You know, by going to the GuideStar or a charity mm. navigator, making sure that it's actually registered, making sure that it's actually compliant um, because you don't want to partner with a nonprofit that's unscrupulous. You know, they can make everything look pretty on their website and on Instagram. Um, but if you actually look into a little bit deeper, which is right at your fingertips, you know, you don't have to dig too deep, like you can just literally go to these websites, um, then it's something that you don't want to put your money with there. You don't want to partner there. Um it's interesting because the tax returns are public, they're public records. So you can see, all right, this is how much money came in, how much money. And uh, how much money went out towards overhead as opposed to actual programming. Um, so it, it is a um, it doesn't it's a nuanced approach, but it doesn't require expertise in
0: nonprofit management. It's, it's like the same kind of due diligence you do if you want to invest in a company Absolutely. or joint venture. So it's that same level of scrutiny that you just have to apply to this world of nonprofits. Um, Can you walk us through, like, um, your favourite engagement that you've done for a client? Um, You don't have to name anyone, obviously, but just describe, like, how you helped them and the impact that that brought about.
1: Yeah, so we have a client that we work with in a particular area on the East Coast of the United States, Um, and it was an area of the country where I spent a lot of time as a kid. My step-family lived there, and you know, it was very nice to be able to return and give back to that community. So we've done a lot of work in that particular community, which meant a lot to me in general. But one of my favorite engagements, uh, we held a women's empowerment summit, and then the next year, a men's summit, um, Mm. but it covered areas that are so needed, but often not given to this particular community, um, and the subsection of the community. um, But everything from uh, learning about civic engagement, to home ownership, to financial literacy, to being able entrepreneurship was another piece. Um, so re- to be able to provide the best of the best in terms of uh, the people who facilitated the conversations and the panels that we were able to curate and have this event for free for people to come out and learn about this. Um, and you saw different generations there. You saw older women who came with their daughters or their granddaughters Um, for the men's event you saw a non-profit brought teenagers because they wanted them to be able to hear this information earlier Um, so that definitely uh, those two events were definitely two of my favorite engagements because i was really close personally to that area but then also to the subject matter um, because knowledge is something that is so important and not always readily available um, and even mm. if it is readily available sometimes you do have to help propel people. so by having it be free and having free lunch and having it at a you know a nicer venue, yes, maybe it got people who perhaps they could have googled the information, but they may not have ever done it. Um, so being able to provide the resources that they need but in an environment that they want it to be in definitely one of my favorite engagements.
0: Amazing. And as you look like into the future, what do you see are like the key trends that will, um, what do you see as the future of philanthropy just generally broadly? Yeah. So it's way past the time,
1: um, but I think you're going to see a lot more diversification and philanthropy. Um, mm. One thing when we started five years ago, um, there is the saying that philanthropy is, you know, a, a white savior mm. mission. Especially when it's with communities yeah. um, that having that savior complex is something that uh, people in the community often see uh, and it doesn't make you feel good if you're on the receiving end if you feel like you know the people who are the benefactors are coming in on that on a white horse to save you and that's the way that they look at it and that's the way they treat you when they do it um, one of the things that we it was always very big for us. And when we were speaking with our clients, we always made sure it's like, find out what the community actually wants, not what you think they want. Because even though you may even be the same, you know, you may have come from that community, you might be helping the community that you grew up in, in, your life is very different than Mm -hmm. what they're living in now, right? Like your needs are different and your outlook on life has changed because of the fact that you are a professional athlete. Um, So, we always want to make sure that people are doing what the community actually wants and needs by talking to those in the community. Uh, so in terms of changing though, um, post George Floyd with industry, every sector changing uh, philanthropy yeah. is as well. Um, there has been a light that's shone, shone, shone upon. Uh, I think I might have made that word up right there. But <laughs> a light- <It's> fine. <laughs> innovative, innovative. innovative. <laughs> You're definitely shining a light on <laughs> the fact that philanthropy is very one-dimensional, and it is not a very diverse industry. Uh, the recipients may be people of color, but the people uh, who are running the nonprofits, who times uh, where the money and the funds are going, their their boards are not diverse. Uh, yeah. They don't have diverse people serving the communities that are a diverse. You know set of communities um and that doesn't work just like it you know it's been happening for so long and it's been like the status quo but like everything was changed after george floyd post george floyd the philanthropy industry is as well so you'll see um what to diversify your board you know yeah. how to divorce diversify your staff how to make sure you're actually meeting the needs of the community how to make sure you know even wording that's something mm-hmm. that um, we will work with people and they'll say certain phrases. And it's like, no, don't don't use those phrases because think about how you would feel on the receiving end if your marketing is like throwing a camera in the face of someone and saying, look at this needy person, right? You know, like, mm-hmm. and, and just, there are so many um, words that are used in the nonprofit industry that where they just don't think of the people that are the recipients they're just thinking of this is the way it's always been. This is how we've always talked about it because they don't have anyone in place on the higher ranks or even in the operations who would be able to speak up and say, Hey, actually let's look at it this way, or let's refer to them this
0: way. And let's, I don't know, look at them as human beings instead of just recipients. Powerful and I think it speaks to um, the danger of a single story and how um, philanthropy as the way society sees it is the way a subsect of people have practiced it. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that it's not being practiced and it's not widespread within the African American or the African community. It's just it might look differently, does that make sense, so you might not have foundations, but. We are very philanthropic in giving of our time, our um, networks, our resources, our communities are very communal. <laughs> <Duh>. um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? very yeah, so I think these diverse stories have to come to the fore. And in the diversification piece, we're talking about not just looking at diversity within the existing, more traditional, philanthropic non-profits, but also allowing for society to embrace a wider view of what philanthropy is
1: absolutely Mm -hmm. and even the history of philanthropy um this is something you and i talked about when we first met
0: Mm -hmm. um
1: you know it there it it all depends on who's telling the story so when Mm -hmm. the story is being told that there's one group who's on the receiving end and another group who's always doing the giving then that's what's ingrained and that's the story that's continuously told um but if you look back from slavery that communal sense of you know our, our people being very communal, um, but helping that has slavery transcended, transcended the great migration in the United States. Every aspect of um, our time frame here over the last since 1619, uh, philanthropy and charitable giving, uh, has always been a part of our society, but it's not part of the story. Um, mm. the story is the help that was needed. Um, So, you know, in terms of how things are changing in in philanthropy or what I foresee, I foresee more diversification. What needs to be done is a a retelling of the story. Um, Mm -hmm. And then that retelling of the story also helps to empower those who are currently in a space where they do need to receive giving or charitable events. Uh, It empowers them to say that this is not how it has to stay. And I think that is a big piece of what's needed in philanthropy and where I hope it's going. Um, The empowerment of the people who are on the other end of charitable giving.
0: I love that. Um, There was a past guest on the podcast that said humanity has no economic threshold. So we don't dehumanize people because they are so-called on the lower rung of the economic ladder. And I think that's what you're speaking to is just because these are beneficiaries of a non-profit does not make them less than those that right. are giving. And we have to allow for diverse stories of different types of people. And really, because we're a collective humanity, after all, um, the bringing down of the least of us is the bringing down of the most of us.
1: Mm. Yes, yeah. And... You know the uh, I say post pandemic, but obviously we're still in the pandemic. But you know we're still in it. Um, I hope that it oh. allowed people who, you know, perhaps even have been charitable all their lives, to see that at a blink of an eye, you can things can be leveled. Because even if you hmm. weren't, weren't um, able to provide for your family and still be able to be financially okay, you are in a position that. Equalize you with someone else, though, who you hmm. might have been able to help before. Um, so I think just really, hopefully, the viewpoint of the humanity piece that you brought up that is so important. Um, people, hopefully, after this is all over. They'll say, you know what? We are all in this together. It is not yeah. just the saying. We actually all are in it together and globally.
0: Yeah, for sure. Oh my goodness. This has been phenomenal um if anyone wants to reach out to you to learn more about your work how you can help them how best can they reach you
1: yeah so with champions for philanthropy we are at champions for dot com and that's for you know sometimes people that try to add the number four there but it's just <laughs> champions for philanthropy, uh, dot com i'm on linkedin as well um and those are the, the best way the best way to reach out there our email addresses are on the website
0: amazing thank you so much alicia this has been amazing
1: thank you it was wonderful talking to you thank you so much for having me on awesome
0: oh my gosh i loved that um last week i was accused by nathaniel O'Kear <laughs> of always saying that was my favorite episode ever that was my favorite episode ever but i can't lie right that was my favorite episode thus far <laughs> Um, No, but like on the real, I think Alicia pointed and unveiled a number of themes that are super important and the first of which is the history of philanthropy and this notion that within the African or African-American community that philanthropy is not new and it's linked to the second and that's the importance of storytelling and highlighting and showcasing diverse stories because there seems to be a single story of who is doing the giving and who is doing the receiving. And that single story, unfortunately, is tied to race and is giving an impression in the media that people of colour are only on the receiving end of handouts, but are not on the giving end but our communities, our cultures, our history is enshrined in the very notion of philanthropy. Ubuntu is a philosophy that's imbibed across the African continent, which is I am because we you, you are. Um, so that's our collective humanity. And so we're very conscious about ensuring that, you know, um, we seek that those that are at risk of being left behind, we mobilize upwards. So whether that's a widow or an unemployed person or someone that, you know, needs assistance with healthcare. Um, I think as a people, we've practiced philanthropy um, and in a way that mobilizes different types of capital as well. Second point is linked, like I said, the importance of storytelling. And I Posted this the other week on social media by my my hero, my shiro, Chimamanda Adichie, um, and she says, the problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue, but that they are incomplete. They make one story become the only story. And like I said, it's really important that we showcase the totality of what's happening on the philanthropy scene, um, because it 's not just one group of people are giving and one group of people are receiving, but that we are all giving and giving in our various different ways, right, and we 're all receiving and receiving in our various different ways and it's it's really sad because the danger of this single story is that this incomplete story not only affects the way we see ourselves but the way others see us and it's really shaping and limiting the dreams and visions of the uprising generation. And we must continue to showcase more diversity of stories so that we can model greater possibility to the uprising generation because we need more philanthropy, we need more innovation, we need more impact. Unfortunately, our world is just a little bit in a... (laughs) in a in a bit of a state right now um, and needs more change makers needs more innovators needs more disruptors and these folk are often inspired by possibility so we must showcase more diversity and then lastly i think for me what i'm really really passionate about seeing is that we are going to see an explosion um an emergence of black wealth both on the continent and in the diaspora for a host of other reasons which perhaps I'll unpack on a different podcast but I think it's important that as we do build our wealth we build our wealth in a conscious way a conscious way that impacts positively on the community on people and planet and we do so embracing philanthropy at the you know from the very beginning of that upward trajectory right and so philanthropy, I don't want folk to think philanthropy is for just the billionaires. If you're starting off on your entrepreneurial journey and you're seeing success, you can start to become, you know, um philanthropic. And it doesn't necessarily have to be just you setting up your foundation like Alicia alluded to. There's so much scope for collaboration, collaboration of capital, collaboration of networks, collaboration of you know, um, of knowledge. There's so much scope, um, but we must make sure that we are people-centric and ensuring that whatever it is that we're doing is actually meeting the needs of those that we're seeking to serve. So that's enough for today. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in. Take good care and God bless you.